This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay, and today we have an awesome guest with us, Mark Patchett, founder at Growth Shop. And Growth Shop is a business that helps scale direct-to-consumer brands. We're going to be talking with Mark about how to scale brands without outside capital. He's really an expert in this space. I know I was looking through their website and there was, I can't remember the exact number, but there was tons of brands that they've scaled to eight figures, which is really impressive. So excited to to chat with Mark. But before we dive into all the fun stuff we have planned over here, I'll pass it over to you, Mark, if you want to give a quick little intro about yourself and uh, tell us a little bit more about what Growth Shop does in your own words. Yeah, cool, man. Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, so Mark Patchett, originally from sunny Australia, left there, I think, about six or I think it's seven and a half or eight years uh, ago, and then moved over to London. But the last decade has all been direct to consumer e commerce stuff. And the, the idea has always been trying to crack the system of what makes brands work and what makes brands unfortunately fail in some cases and trying to reverse engineer it. So I launched Grow Shop as the embodiment of. I guess all the shit that I'd learned over the years and what we've got is essentially the full stack team you'd find in like a venture backed company, a bunch of really, really smart people that understand the strategy, but can also execute on it. And then we built some cool technology on the back end. And the main gist of what we do is we find brands that solve a problem is usually a really, really smart founder, understands the product, understands the customer, but usually doesn't understand the growth bit. So we essentially bolt on all the stuff we do and then we grow brands uh, really quickly. Yeah, that's, that's the gist. That's awesome. So how did you get into the uh, the e-commerce space? Like, was there like a brand? Did you start your own brand or did you start working with other brands and then you started scaling a couple of them and you, you decided to build out Growth Shop or how did that really happen? It's been kind of like really, really zigzaggy. So I had my first entrepreneurial taste when I was, when I was 14 or so. I created like a fireworks distribution network within all the different high schools. So at that time, there was only one state in uh, Australia that sold fireworks. And it's the classic kind of thing where it was the capital city, Australian capital territory. That was the place you go if you wanted to buy porno and fireworks. <laughs> the rest of the country is like, no, nah, we, don't, we, don't, we don't touch that shit. But the capital is like, no, nah, you're good. So I had a buddy that lived down there uh, and we'd buy a bunch of fireworks. And then one day I was like, shit, everybody wants this stuff. I talked to the dude. I was like, man, can I get a price list and can you ship interstate? He's like, yeah, mate, no fucking worries. So then I punched all the stuff into Excel, times everything by like one and a half and started distributing it. So the business actually went really, really well until my mom called up the uh, local business bureau. She's like, my son has a wonderful little business. Like, what is he doing? I was selling fireworks. Like, yeah, you got to shut that shit down. So shut me down. But my, I, I think it's still one of my proudest business moments is one of the guys came up to me at school. And he's like, Mark, Mark, Mark. He's like, uh, it was in the newspaper. It was actually on the news as well that there'd been an increase in fireworks complaints in our local area. I was like, fucking bang. Nailed it. Uh, so from that one, it was always like a zigzag where I, I had to be starting stuff. And I'd start something, it would fail, and I'd learn about what I needed to learn more about. So I had like a water filtration company. We spent 50%, no, it was more than 50% of our capital on like beautiful branding. Uh, and then a thunderstorm came and wet it all and it was all gone. We're like, maybe we should have sold products before we did branding. But then, yeah, jumped between all of them. And I'd work with amazing companies, fill my education gap, start something again. But then where it really kicked off was uh, with Grow Shop, which kicked off a couple of years ago. 
Nice. That's awesome. Uh, well, excited to, to dive into some of the stuff that you're doing over there. I know you work and help with scaling a lot of brands and, uh, you know, scaling brands definitely means more than just having a product. Uh, you know, you usually need to have a few things right before turning on that engine to scale. Talking to, to brands that might be listening over here um, and thinking about, you know, getting ready to really scale or take that next step wherever, what, whatever position they are. What are kind of like, based on your experiences, like the must-haves that brands uh, should have before kind of, you know, really throwing uh, gasoline onto the fire? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we have some criteria and we got a bit of a blueprint. I kind of dream in blueprints. But the start of all of it is kind of stuff that some people find boring, which is understanding things like your unit economics and your negative capital working cycle. So it means... And it's really interesting. You'll meet with people and I'm like, all right, what's your target CPA? Like, what's your target ROAS? You want to grow this thing? And they're like, oh, six bucks. I'm like, okay, cool. So you're selling like an $80 product. You are paying $60 for the product. You pay for the product upfront and you're going to need a conversion rate of like 15%. I'm like, that's not going to happen. So the the first bit is to really understand the core fundamental numbers of, of your actual business. So I'd get people to map out what are your cogs? I'm writing writing this shit down. So I think you map out your cogs, you try you understand what your cycle is. Because the problem is if you don't get that right, I had a, an essential oils company called Pure Essentials. And this was the first time I quit a job prematurely. It was an Amazon business, got it up to like 40 grand a month. We're, uh, we're on like a team event and we're on the back of a cruise ship and it would like go close enough to the shore where I'd get signal. And then I'd just see my orders like popping through. I'm like, man, I'm a fucking entrepreneur. I hit this stuff. And then I, I didn't realize that the bigger, the bigger the business got, I was prepaying for my inventory. On day one, it takes four weeks to get there. And then Amazon does the, the disbursements you've cashed in two weeks. So I had like a six-week cycle that I was prepaying. So as the business grew, I had less and less money. And then I was banging it on my Amex, getting some points, which I thought was good until it doesn't matter if you can fly somewhere if you don't have any money to buy anything when you get there. So the, the long story there is really, really understand your margin. You want to be at kind of like 60% plus. That's kind of like a sweet spot. Then you need to know your cycle. So forecast it out. And you say, if my business is going to grow, like that wonderful graph you build in Excel when you're modeling a business for the first time, like we're going to be millionaires, man. Excel told me. Understand the amount of capital you're actually going to need to pay for these different products. That's the right time to actually start negotiating with your supplier. And you say, all right, if we get to this point, we want to shift towards 30-day net. So I want to be getting my products. I want to be shipping them. I want to be booking the revenue, and I don't want to be paying for them yet. So I think make sure you get that right and make sure you get the supply relationship right. And is that how you do it before, without running out of inventory? Or like, is there a point where you do run out of inventory? Uh, is that part of the process? Or, or is there other ways to finance it? Because I'm just thinking... You know, people listening, hey, Mark, I have, I have, like you said, I have my spreadsheet totally nailed down. It shows us that we're going to be at $10 million, you know, in our first year, but, you know, I can't finance the inventory. So I think what you just explained, is that the formula and do you run out of inventory or not? Or do you finance the inventory somehow else? Yeah, there's a lot of different options there. So one of the really good options is actually just inventory financing. So the kind of rub there is that these guys and girls, whoever owns the owns that cash they're going to be giving you wants to see historical sales cycles. So they want to know that your inventory is only actually an asset. If you can historically validate that you can convert that inventory into cash. So if you do have those types of patents, it's a really, really good way to go. And you can get quite inexpensive capital for that. 
But inventory financing is fantastic. But by far the best way to do it is negotiating with your suppliers because then the suppliers can essentially fund your business. Mm-hmm. And in terms of whether you're selling out, just on that point, this is a tricky one because with FBA, so Amazon businesses, this can really hurt you because you build velocity to get your ranking of your products. And when you sell out, your product's down, which means that you've got to climb back up when you get it. So with e-commerce types of businesses, it's much easier, particularly if you're using something like Google Shopping because Google Shopping does a really, really good job at just turning back on. But if you're doing Facebook and you've got to stop your ads, you can lose momentum there. So one of the other strategies you can use there, which uh, worked quite well for me, is instead of turning off my ads, I actually have like a pre-order discount. And you can actually use that type of messaging to your advantage. So this is one of the times I was like, man, I'm fucked. This is going to kill me. Then I was like, oh, shit. Why don't I just take advantage of scarcity type of messaging? Why don't I say, this is absolutely booming. Sales are through the roof. And you don't even need to say, sorry, we're out of stock. You need to say, pre-order yours now and save 20%. That kind of messaging can mean that you keep rolling. So that's kind of like an acquisition side strategy, which actually fulfills all of your supply challenges as well. And when, when you develop these relationships with these suppliers, I'm just thinking on, on the side of the brand, is there a way to prevent any potential downside of being screwed by you know that partnership from that supplier? Because as an example, what happens if then another buyer comes to that supplier that is going to be a way bigger customer than you can be? And then you know you kind of built this relationship and then the supplier is like, hey, actually, we don't care about you anymore. So kind of a way to protect yourself against that, or is it just a wild west nature of, of, <laughs> of suppliers and manufacturers? Yeah, that's a tough one. But that all, that all comes down to getting contracts right. So this was a another area that I learned the hard way as well, because I'm the visionary entrepreneur type, only believes that things are going to work out really, really well. So I would go on like, I love Upwork, but I'd go on Upwork and find kind of cheap lawyers that would build out my contracts you could rip holes through these things, man, rip holes through these things. So I think it's be really conscious of getting good contracts in place with these suppliers, bulletproof ones. It's well worth spending a couple grand on to get it right. And you're right. They'll be able to answer the questions that you do that, that you're asking them because their job is to prevent people from getting fucked over. And they've seen all the people get fucked over. I don't know that shit. They know that shit. So yeah, I, w- I would, I would pay good money for that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense over there. I know you were talking about, I'd love to circle back to the pre-order thing as well that you mentioned over there. You know, when converting those customers over, obviously there's like a little bit of wait time between there. What are some of the strategies that you can do like around those customers specifically to, you know, keep them engaged and keep them excited about the product and then uh, potentially even convert over into repeat customers as well? And a lot of it is about the social proof and the excitement of the product and absolute transparency with the product you've got going on. So you can, you can steal good examples from all of the crowdfunding sites. They do a fantastic job at it because people are investing in this stuff and sometimes they have to wait six months for it. So you can see this, this really, really fun type of messaging flow, which is almost like people are becoming part of the company and they're becoming part of the journey. So the things that really help there is being very personal is not being scared to be on camera. Like we'd send emails with videos of whoever would kind of embody that brand or whoever the founder of that brand would be and giving frequent updates there. Because what you'll find, and it depends on the price point of the product, is that people are happy to pre-order. But if they're waiting two, three months, even if you've been clear about it and they lose the excitement because maybe you had a banging Facebook ad, they can lose momentum, they've got to pay rent, they could refund it. 
So I think it's keeping people really, really excited, sharing examples of when people are actually getting their products, things like unboxings. So it's making as much of a personal relationship as possible. And that stuff's free. You know what I mean? Do it on an iPhone. It costs nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's getting easier and easier to record and uh, cut up content these days, which is awesome. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast. And look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, scaling your brand to where do you spend your money? Um, you know, obviously when you're growing your business, you're starting to get money in, you can spend it in a bunch of different ways. How do you kind of determine where to spend those early dollars for brand growth, especially if you don't have outside capital? And then in your experience, has it differed by brand? Maybe any examples that you can kind of share with us as well? Yeah, so the the thing that's always so important to keep in mind is to be so conscious of keeping operational costs at the lowest as possible. So there's this kind of tendency when a business can start showing traction, you're like, oh, now I need a marketing manager, I need a fucking email person, I need all these people. You just don't. You want to be keeping that as low as possible because what that then does is it gives you an allowable amount that you can buy the products for, buy that traffic for. So you want to have like your return on ad spend target as low as possible because if you can be making money on like 150% ROAS, you want to print that. You want to be putting as much money in the top of funnel for customer acquisition as possible, like no question about it. So, and I think that's something that people don't think about. Like the easy thing to think about is channels. The hard thing to think about is low operational costs. So you've got that ROAS target. So once you've got that, I think about uh, acquisition in two different ways. So the first is when you've got like money in, money out types of types of channels, which is Facebook, which is uh, AdWords. If you're doing shit on fucking Snapchat, whatever it is, that's all bringing people in the funnel. The second type, which is really, really important, is on activities that you know are the right thing that may be really hard to attribute. So areas here are partnerships, areas here are affiliates, things such as like sprints on PR. This is the kind of stuff influencers, fucking influencers. And being having a kitty, that means you can be generous to get acceleration here. So I would be taking care of the right people that are going to amplify my brand. Because what happens is all that shit that then compounds increases your conversion rate and allows you to spend more money. But the the thing that you have to get right here is that it's really hard to track this stuff often. So like what's the value of a Forbes article? What's the value of a product placement with a certain affiliate that maybe is like scaling up their audience or they've got all of their traffic on the main products and they're only going to pop traffic to your product once you get traction. These things are really hard to do. So that's when I, I use gut and qualitative much, much more. So it's like if I was talking to a customer in person like this and they were like, well, how do I know that your product's useful? How do I know that your product actually works? I'm like, well, we got featured on this place. You can see us here, here, here. If you're thinking about it like that as like a one-to-one sales relationship, more often than not, if people can find those types of pieces of exposure just by Googling you, this is offsite conversion rate optimization. This is another thing that people don't really think about, offsite CRO. So I'd mix my budget between activities that I know are right, that all things being equal are going to lift the brand, 
And then I, I then put the rest of the, the cash in the top of the funnel on the main marketing channels. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And thanks for diving into that. Ramon, I know you wanted to ask about uh, identifying like the right channel for growth as well. Yeah. So, you know, do you guys have a kind of a go-to blueprint where it's like, you know, ads is, is the best form of scalable growth here? Or do you guys kind of test multiple channels and, you know, one might be each brand might have their own unique growth channel. Uh, like, do you do a test between a bunch of growth channels first and then identify which one works best and then double down on that one? Or do you guys just, you know, have, have one uh, way to go, which is ads is, is the most scalable way to do it? It's the ads for sure. Yeah, it's the ads is like the backbone for sure. So I've, I've run a lot of tests on a lot of different channels. Uh, like we did stuff with Pinterest, we did stuff with Snapchat, we did stuff with TikTok. But when you're starting out, you go to where the audience is largest and the platform is most sophisticated, always. Because at like low budgets, you're always going to get the best traffic that's going to convert best. Because these platforms have spent billions of dollars engineering it. So I'd always start there. But then the other ones, I'd always also be thinking about those other types of channels that I talked about before, which is partnerships and affiliates. They're the ones where you want to find defensible pockets that don't cost a lot of money. So you can do a lot of strategic partnerships there. Like I would be always thinking, what's something that my competitors probably aren't thinking about? And what's the type of deal that I can negotiate, which isn't going to cost me a lot of money, where it's going to be defensible. So things like that are forums still. Things like that are like mom's groups on Facebook. There's like Slack groups now. There's going to people that have got YouTube videos and cutting deals with them to help them extract more cash out of their audience. All that shit, when you have to spend time and call somebody, people are scared to call people. People don't think about calling people. People think the Facebook pixel is going to be everything. So I'd, I'd split my, my time between those. So the ones that are more contextually specific by product are always going to be what these different types of groups and partnerships are. Yeah, I mean, I've, I recently came across this gaming company. Their entire growth channel is around Discord communities. So yeah, it's, it's heavily under leveraged. Um, I want to touch back to one point on, on the brand side. So tying up, you know, spending on the brand versus along with that story that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, which was the story of all that branding being ruined for that company that you invested in brand first. How is, where, where does brand sit in the process of you launching a brand now? Is it non-negotiable in the beginning or is it is there a stage like, hey, you know, this is not a brand until it has, say, a million dollars or five million dollars in, in revenue? Yeah. One of my favorite topics, this one. I've had a lot of fun arguments with, not arguments, discussions uh, with people. Because <laughs> there's people that only do the brand first, you know, um, and, and, and only sell a brand. So I'm curious on, on that. So I think the first bit here is dissecting what is brand. What is brand? Because people split out performance marketing and brand marketing. Like that's one of the primary ways to think about it. But all brand marketing really is, is a marketing activity which does one of two things. It provides a lot of confidence, but it's still trying to convert customers. But then the other way to think about brand, if you think about a big guy like Coca-Cola, someone like that, they actually, it's an LTV play. They, they're trying to buy front of mind. So it's still actually always about performance. But what changes is the timeline that you're typically going to see a payback. That's all it really is. But the other way, the other way to think about it is like, what is brand? You could think about brand as like a, a paid marketing activity, but brand is, is really about the continuity of a strong message across all of your different touch points when someone comes into contact with your, with your brand or with your company. So in this instance, how effectively are you telling your story on your website? Is there consistency with the way you're sharing it? 
through your emails, through your SMS, through your ads, all this type of shit is actually what the brand is. And this is where you see it being odd when you're like, wow, this brand's so cool in their Facebook ad. Then you go to the website and there's no, there's no consistency there. There's no, like they call it like the notion of sense. There's no, you smell it and then bang, it changes. So I think when you're thinking about brand in the beginning, go through your touch points and then make sure you've got a clear message. And the way that I, I kind of think about all of this is that your unique value proposition or your reason to buy should be so succinct that you could write it on the back of, of a dirty coaster in you know some bar in Idaho. Like that's how succinct it should be. And people should be able to communicate that back to you in all of your key touch points. So on your homepage, it's above the fold. Someone lands directly on your product page, it needs to be bang there in the key bullet points. So I think brand is continuity. And in terms of if you're thinking about running like paid media specifically, if you're starting and you're fresh, you need to be selling stuff. You need to be selling stuff. So make sure that you're wrapping your brand in a way where you're still motivating people to purchase. Otherwise, it's tough and it's premature. I really like where I, I never thought about it on from an LTB perspective on what you mentioned with Coca-Cola, because it does make sense that when you invest in brand, it drives repurchase behavior and re- retention, which ultimately, you know, it's is kind of like you're, you're investing in, in LTV over a period of time, just making sure that you're top of mind for the consumer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And when you can afford to do that is if you break down your marketing activity or you break down your contribution of revenue from new customers versus repeat customers. If you've got like a repeat customer base, like keep, keep taking Coca-Cola as an example, like what's the actual net new acquisition of customers, you know, aside from like 13 year old kids in Brazil, you know what I mean? Most of their customers are repeat buyers, which means that a massive proportion of their budget can go to these types of activities. If you don't have that in your business, then you need to be thinking of driving new customer acquisition, which is typically going to be a more direct response type of message. Do you often find when you know working on that brand, if that's what you're helping um, a business do, do you often find that you have to eventually at some point reinvest in brand um, and kind of like look back at it? Or is it more of like a, once you kind of set it up and everyone kind of understands what that consistent messaging is, um, it's just really pushing that through. Yeah, I think it needs to it needs to evolve and it needs to have its own life, because the most the most important thing that comes from this is the feedback cycle. So when your brand is new or when your company is new, you're typically going to have like one type of cohort of customers, and you may have like some obsessive people that are coming back and buying and buying. They may have bought into the concept of the company as a whole, but as you start scaling it to new audiences, completely cold audiences, you may find that you need to tweak the way you communicate what your product does and what your brand is about to actually work for that large audience. So yeah, you need to be really agile with it and you need to be constantly asking your your customers, why did you buy from us? What excited you about our brand? What don't you like about our brand? So yeah, for sure, it needs to be a living, breathing organism. So I know one thing that's on Growth Shop's website a lot, and I know you've talked about this. I was listening to, I think, a a YouTube video um, that you were a guest on as well. One thing that you talk about and Growth Shop talks about a lot is building your unfair advantage. So can you kind of walk us through what you mean by that and how that really impacts an ability for a business to scale? Yeah, totally. So the unfair advantage is a really fun one. And that's the one that ties into the dirty the dirty coaster or cocktail napkin, which is having a very, very, very clear reason why somebody should buy your product and whatever like utility it does. Or if your product doesn't have utility, what's cool about it? You know, what is that strong enough? 
So there needs to be a strong enough reason that you can actually communicate it to people. So that's like the front end. So if you take a like an organic cleaning product, say there's one product which means that you no longer need eight toxic chemicals under your sink. You can have one organic, healthy product, declutters, cost-effective, safe for the home. That's powerful. The next bit that comes from the, the unfair advantage is actually on the economic side that we talked about before. So the, the fun part that's really, really hard to reverse engineer is that you could have two brands that are kind of similar, but one of them is paying 20 cents on the dollar or one of them is paying $1.20, but they've got 60 days net payment terms where they don't have to pay for their product until it ships. That's an unfair advantage. It's like, you know, come at them. How are you going to, how are you going to fucking beat those guys? You know what I mean? They, they've got all of their business funded uh, on the back of their supply chain. So part of it, your unfair advantage is having a really clear message that you could communicate just like we, we're talking right now where someone would say, wow, that really fills my need in a unique way. The, you know, the pinnacle of that is when you've got trademarks and you've got patents, you don't need those. Uh, then the other side is on the economics of the business. So you've always got to be thinking about those two in parallel. Yeah. How do you um, go about, you know, f- uh, for brands that are listening that maybe haven't built their unfair advantage, is there kind of a way to go about finding out what that unfair advantage is, building that unfair advantage? Like what are some of the things that brands can do there? So I think the, the first thing to think about is why, why you're actually doing what you're doing. You know, what's, what's the inspiration behind it? That is usually a way to extract an interesting story. And well, some point, sometimes people don't have that. You know, if you don't have that, it's kind of hard. And you can always tell when you look at a brand, like say the corporates, and the corporate's like, oh, we need to be socially responsible. You know, it's like at BP, and it's like, ah, you guys are ticking a box. So I, I think you've got to be very honest with this. I think you have got to be honest with yourself. And when you're thinking about how you communicate it to someone, if you're finding it difficult to talk about, why is that? Is that because there actually isn't anything really unique about your products? But there can be. So you can evolve your brand. So I would always be looking at my competitive set and I'd be positioning them out. You know, are people going for price? Are you trying to win on cost? Which I don't like to work in that space because bigger people, more capitalized people can, can just absolutely just pommel you. Uh, so I'd always want to be trying to sell on concept. So I'd be firstly thinking about what's the story behind why you do what you do and making sure that that's really, really honest. The next thing I'd be trying to think about is what does my product do differently to my competitors? And if it doesn't do anything differently, I would be talking to my customers and I'd be saying, why did you buy from us? Is there something that my product does for you that I didn't actually know that it does? And if not, I would start talking to them and I'd say, all right, what would be cool? What would be amazing if we developed our product and tweaked it a little bit? What could it be doing better for you? But it doesn't even need to just be about the product development side. You could also have service-based side. So for example, a company I worked, uh, worked with called Nectar Sleep. This is a job I had. A really, really cool company. It grew very fast. It had a mattress that had 365-night sleep trial. Everybody else had 100. Same product, better sleep trial. You model out the economics and you're like the increase in conversion rate that you have from offering that nets out. You actually make money on it. So even if you've got a longer period where people can return it, it works out uh, in the long run. Because the fun thing that comes out of that straight away is that you've got a fun hook. You've got two things. So one, you're appeasing people, you're removing stresses and doubt pre-purchase, but then you've got a fun hook, which we used to use a good one, which is not only what you have, but as a function of what you have, what does that mean about your competitors? So us having 365 nights means that you ask the question, why don't the competitors have 365 nights? Don't they have enough confidence in their product? So it's like, oh shit. 
So you can play with things such as, as warranties. You can play with things such as the level of service when you're actually delivering a product. It can be experiential, but it can also be through strategic partnerships that you have. So if you've got a really cool product, but it's perfectly complementary to two other companies, can you be pairing up with these companies so that people actually have some kind of package there? Uh, that can be defensible as well. Yeah, that's a really good uh, framework and kind of strategy to look at over there. So as we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast over here, I've got one more question to ask. And I, I don't know if Ramon's got anything else over here, um, but I'd be really interested since you have worked with you know so many brands helping to scale direct-to-consumer brands. There's so many different factors that go into you know building a great brand, building a great business. You've got your product, there's design, there's content, there's data, lots of different things. Um, what do you think are like the, the most important factors that you've seen play like the most pivotal role in uh, brand growth and, and scaling that business? So without a doubt here, it is getting really good at talking to your customers, both prospective customers, which are people that come to your website, you may get their email, they don't buy, finding out why. Really, really understand the power of just talking to these people. It's free. It's literally free. Or we pay people 10 bucks, 20 bucks Amazon vouchers. It's cheap as shit for the value that you get. And it's the number one skill you need to have. And it's the one thing you shouldn't be outsourcing. And there's a lot of really good free frameworks out there that give you just basic surveys. But I would be getting on the phone and I'd be talking to as many people as possible. Uh, then the other thing I would do is I'd have everybody working in customer service as well, uh, which these guys and girls are on the front line of this shit. So it's useful for you to be there to hear the customer's frustrations, what they like, the good, the bad, and then having a feedback loop. So making sure that you're iterating your company and your brand and your positioning based on what you're learning, but also getting smart about knowing what volume and what consistency of one message do you need to hear before you change something. So for example, when something's broken on the website, it's easy, it's binary, fix it. But if someone's saying, oh, I don't like your shit because the product quality doesn't feel good enough, but your sales are really good and your refund rates are low, you got to take that into account. Maybe it's just that one person's uh, one person's piece of feedback. So get really, really good at that for sure. And then that's where you're going to get the nuggets for your ads. It's how you're going to inform all of your messaging throughout your website. That then is going to be the foundation that makes absolutely everything perform better. But get get that right without question. We've definitely heard customer experience being a, a big part of um, scaling a business before. Uh, so thanks for hitting on that again. I have questions over here, Ramon. I don't know if there's anything that uh, you want to ask Mark about or, or dive into further. No, I mean, I think just one last closing comment on that is that that message from the customer, when the customer support team receives it, it never reaches the other team members in such a pure way because every team member has a different brain and different way of looking uh, what the customer has to say, you know, the product team is going to read that feedback from the customer and see it completely different than how the packaging designer is going to see it, than how the CEO is going to see it. And so um, that's a great point because each person in the company should be reading those directly in order to scale that that feedback. So I love that. But other than that, I mean, I'm all set. I got a ton of value from this myself, even even though I'm the the, the host here taking advantage of, of Mark's brain. So thank you. I have one thought actually one, on, on that. So one way to fix this, you're right, because CS people may not know the questions to ask, or they may not know what to actually look for. So there's two things you can do here that are really, really effective. So the first one is that you can have little insight committees. So you should be having people in products, people in performance marketing, 
coming forward, which is what are the biggest questions? What are the things we want to validate? Get them working directly with the CS people saying, guys, this is the shit we want to hunt for. And you can, you can actually incentivize people that find interesting ideas with like cash bonuses, like little spot pieces like that. But often you don't even need to because it's really empowering to know that your job has so much more value than just, you know, picking up phones. And then as soon as that feedback loop starts coming, people are going to be like, shit, these guys are like my superpower. You know what I mean? They give me all, they give me all the answers. So I'd get people working really collaboratively and have like aligned KPIs and some fun little incentives there. And what a lot of management teams do nowadays is like they tell the CS team, hey, record the call, you know, record that call, put it here. Our team members are going to listen to it. And the guys are like, I, I clocked out of work. Like, I'm not going to spend 10 hours listening to these videos, you know? Yeah, I'm not, I'm, so, yeah, I'm not on yeah, the clock, man. I'm not on the clock. Uh, yeah, to make, make it fun, collaborative meetings, buy everybody lunch or, you know, order people food if you're distributed uh, and make, make it a sport and it'll, it'll work. You'll get gold, guarantee it. Definitely. Awesome. Well, Mark, you know, I, I know you gave us a lot of great information over here. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I know Ramon said he learned a lot. I learned a lot as well. Before we let you go over here, we always like to ask our guests, where can people kind of learn a little bit more about uh, growth shop and, and p- potentially connect with you as well? Yeah, cool. Just growth.shop is the, is the URL or my email. You hit me up direct, mark at growth.shop. Yeah, I'd love to hear you. As you can tell, I can talk about this stuff all all day long. So yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mark, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast over here. It's been an awesome little over 30 minutes over here. Um, and uh, I'm sure the audience has gotten a lot of value from this as well. If you did, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time on the DTC pod. Thank you, Mark. No worries, guys.